standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. And do I have a doozy for you. Earlier this year saw the publication of Deep Deception, a non-fiction book about the spy cop scandal by five of the women targeted by undercover police officers in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s and into the 2010s. They were part of left-wing activist groups routinely spied on by the Special Demonstration Squad, a shadowy police unit founded in 1968. All five of them were hoodwinked into believing they had met their perfect man, when in fact that person that they shared their life with did not really exist. Instead, their partners were specially trained and married police officers who had stolen the identity of a dead child. This week, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with two of them. The first is Helen Steele, who you may have heard of as she was one of the two defendants in the world-famous McLibel trial. Helen was 22 in the 1980s when she met 27-year-old John Barker, actually 32-year-old John Dines. The second is Alison, who, like many of the women involved in this scandal, is choosing to keep her real identity secret. And fair play. She was manipulated into a five-year, five-year relationship with Mark Cassidy, real name Mark Jenner, in the 1990s. Along with three other women, known only as Belinda, Lisa and Naomi, and with the assistance of Veronica Clark, they've created a fascinating, horrifying and genuinely important history of the Spy Cop scandal, and I would advise any and all of you to read it. I could have talked to Alison and Helen all day, and I really hope that you enjoy listening to our chat. Helen and Alison, thank you very much for joining me. When I was writing the introduction to this interview, I thought long and hard about how I was going to describe what happened to you. Do I say you were in relationships with these men, that you were targeted by them? Do I call you victims? And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to ask you, how do you describe yourself in terms of what happened to you? I'm going to start with you, Helen. I would say that we were deceived into relationships by men who were posing as activists who had shared values with us, but in fact were undercover policemen trying to undermine everything we stood for. That's good and clear. Alison? Well, I mean, I think our shorthand often is, or my shorthand is, as a survivor of spy cops abuses. The word victim is so loaded. I, I try not to use it at all unless somebody's put it in their own mouth, I think. I, th- I think the other thing, though, I suppose, is that that is what we are. I think we are survivors of spy cops abuses. But I think one of the things that we kind of resist in a way, or I certainly resist, and I think we've tried to resist it in the book as well, is to be pigeonholed in that way because mm. we're much more than that. And I, and I think that's what, you know, when we look at like what we were before this happened to us and then where we are since we came together, we are survivors, but we were also all different individual people with our own careers and our own passions before any of this happened. We're changed by the experience, but you know those, those ideas and those passion, I suppose, were the things that got us started on this journey, and we still hold a lot of those very dear. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that you've probably asked yourselves a million times, and it's a question you probably still don't know the answer to, But I think it is the first question anyone would have about this case. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Why you? 
We don't have those answers. I mean, we don't know whether we were targeted specifically because of what we were involved with or whether it was just the officers thought that, you know, here was a easy way to, to get sex, you know, mm. use women. I think as well, what we're seeing from, you know, from what we've uncovered, but also from what's come out from the public inquiry, it's why everyone, we are two of 50 women who um, have these intimate long-term relationships that we were deceived into by undercover police. But there are hundreds of thousands of people over 50 years who were spied on. So I think the bigger question is, is why were these spying operations happen? Because as Helen said, you know, we've had no disclosure. So we don't know why us. I mean, you know, personally for me, I think I was very useful cover. I think it was a perk of the job. And I think in some cases, some of us were targeted. You know, Helen, she writes about in the book, was, you know, having an impact. Yeah. Some of us were having, not sure I was, but some of us were having, you know, a real political impact. But I think fundamentally, they were on a junket. It was like the Wild West, really. They were lawless. Actually, I didn't say that as the other the other reason, of course, is not just um, either targeting or or useful for you know, used for sex. There's also the fact that, as Alison mentioned, we were used as cover. Like when I confronted John at Sydney Airport, you know, five years ago now and asked him about why he'd done it. He said, what did I have? All I had was a van. And that was basically saying to me that I was used for cover. You know, a bloke arrives from nowhere. People might be suspicious about him. But if he's got a girlfriend that's been in the movement a long time, it makes him much more trustworthy or believable. So, I think the other thing is that it's difficult to know how much people know about this story. You know, we're so immersed in it and, and the nature of social media is that it just generates the same content and sends it back at you. So you could be forgiven for thinking everyone in the world has heard of Spy Cops and everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. But the reality is actually, you know, I'm, I'm struck often by people who were like, what? I didn't know about that. That's terrible. Why doesn't everyone know about that? Mm. And I think, you know, in terms of why us, anybody really, anybody involved in any kind of progressive political movements, small or large, who were involved in going to political meetings or attending a protest or being active in their union, they were spied on. And so, you know, from 1968 until well, probably the present day, so the scale of it is, is huge. I was a, a teacher and I was involved in my trade union and I was a member of um, an organisation called the Colin Roach Centre in Hackney, which was focusing on you know, anti-racism, supporting immigration needs and uh, anti-fascism uh, and specifically police monitoring. So mm. they were targeting any, and hoovering up information about everybody everybody i mean the question yeah, know, is what that was used for isn't it yes we know through the public inquiry that um over a thousand groups were spied on and reported on by these secret political police units and of those thousand or so groups only a handful were from the far right the vast majority of those spied on were progressive movements for social change movements against racism against sexism against homophobia for environmental justice, you know, trade unionists, family justice campaigns that were spied on. Basically, was anyone challenging the status quo was seen as fair game for these units. It's just outrageous, really. I couldn't agree more. And as well as being outrageous, it seems, everything about it seems almost designed to, to be as 
as cruel as it possibly can. I mean, one of the benefits of you sharing your experiences, you could see there was a very clear playbook, including how, let's call them these spying operations or these relationships were ended. Um, And Helen, I have to say, the way in which John, putting that in quotes, finished your relationship seemed especially protracted and cruel and almost designed to give you hope and almost designed to make you think in the future, had you found something out, maybe that the two Johns had started to blur. But like you say, you met him and that wasn't the case. And I just, I just, yeah, I just wonder, do you have any, any idea of, of what, why the hell this happened the way it did? Every so often when I was reading your story, I opened the middle pages and looked at a picture of him and just said, prick. And then went back to reading it. It made me so furious. Just the unnecessary, I think, cruelty at that point inflicted on you. To be honest, the entire relationship was uh, unnecessary cruelty. Mm, agreed. So I was in, you know, from a from being a teenager, I was involved in um, first in animal rights campaigning because I, at school, I, I went to a slaughterhouse with a school tri- with a school trip, and that turned me vegetarian. I got involved with animal rights campaigning, and then through people I met on animal rights campaigning I got involved with you know other environmental and social justice issues I got involved with London Greenpeace in the late 1980s and not long after John started coming and I mean we talk about it in the book the kind of well-worn tactic of the undercover officers having a van offering to drive people home making themselves useful seeming like you know they're they're really great and helpful when actually what they're doing is trying to find out where you all live because if Mm. obviously if they're dropping you off they find out where you live and then for both me and Alison we were the last ones dropped off and in the course of being driven around we're chatting about life and becoming closer Um, and certainly for me John deliberately manipulated my emotions to draw me closer to him you know he told me about the death of his father and then a, about 15 months later told me his mum had died and he lent on me for emotional support. Mm. And I now know that, that his parents hadn't even died. So that was deliberate manipulation, you know, basically to 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 make me kind of invested in looking after him and caring about him and then feeling in return that he cared for me. So, you know, it was emotional manipulation right from the start. And then... The phase when he was leaving was really prolonged and cruel, really quite abusive, the way that he, you know, left and claiming that his, he was having some kind of breakdown and then came back and said he wanted to be with me, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with me, talked about having children with me, then he'd disappear again, then he'd come back. And, and all of the while, you know, sort of telling me stories about implying that he'd got an alcohol problem or that he was sleeping rough so that I was worried about him so that when he did finally disappear I was worried that he might even kill himself Mm. and you know I spent I spent years worrying about that as a consequence so yes it it was extremely cruel and abusive behavior. You use on the back of your book you use three words that are quite 21st century but yet fit this case exactly which is groomed, gaslighted, ghosted. I don't think any three words could, could 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 do it better. I was thinking when I was reading this, what would I think in this situation? Or if a friend came to me and said, you know, there are things that don't add up about this relationship. 
He never lets me meet his family. He seems to have money when he doesn't seem to have a source of income. And I thought, what would I think if, if that was me or if someone said that to me? And I thought, well, my first thought would probably be that he was quite posh and pretending not to be posh. And he was worried about that coming out. He had a trust fund, but he didn't want anyone to know about it. And my second thought would be that he was dealing probably drugs, but, you know, maybe stolen goods, something. You have to come out into the real world and face people like me, your friends or whatever, and say, guess what? He was an undercover policeman. And it sounds, well, to, for the want of a better word, mad. It sounds paranoid. It sounds delusional. It sounds like you are women who cannot accept that this relationship just ended. I mean, again, so cruel. How did, did that impact on you? Let me start with you, Alison. I think one of the things that's interesting about that is how they knowingly or unknowingly utilised like institutional misogyny. But, where, but I mean the misogyny and the sexism of our whole society mm. as a way of kind of factoring into their exit strategy, if you like, because they knew, I think, that our friends and families, as most of them did when we were in that situation, are saying, mm, you know, forget even when we started to suspect, but even saying he's gone, in my case, just saying he, before, you know, in that I, I suspected very, very early, but there was a 10 days, two weeks, couple of weeks, I'm not sure, two or three weeks where I just was abandoned. And during even those times, people were saying to me, just leave it. He's just another inadequate man. He can't commit. Mm. Don't, you know, don't drive yourself mad. Don't spoil the rest of your life. You know, just accept he's just another emotionally limited. And so I think that was that for the first stage of, of that kind of abandonment. And then when I started to suspect and say, look, I think he, and this is before Lisa had unmasked Mark Kennedy. Mm. And it was before I'd met Helen. I mean, I knew of Helen, but it was before we'd met up to talk about our respective stories, about which is about three years after my Mark, Mark Jenner, my Mark, I mean, really. But Mark <laughs> Jenner, Mark Cassidy um, disappeared. And people didn't, I mean, again, it is a big section of my book, really, because people didn't believe me. My mum believed me. My friend Jude believed me. There were one or two other people. But generally, you know, for, for years, my dad you know, didn't, I mean, right, you know, I think towards the end, I think after Mark was, it must have been 2013, where Mark was, you know, we brought the case, we had some hearings, and Mark was in the paper, and I think on, on the TV, I think there was an item on Newsnight, and I told my dad to watch it, and, and this, this was like 13 years later, and my dad was like, Oh, oh, so he really was an undercover policeman then. <laughs> yeah. like, what Thanks, do you think I've been shouting about for 13 years? And I think the other stuff is that it plays into, particularly with close friends or family members, it plays into those dynamics. You know, whatever your dynamics are or whatever people kind of perceive you as. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite extrovert and I can be quite dramatic. So my brother was like, you know, literally, you're a drama queen. You know, can you stop being a drama queen? Your boyfriend's left because you're a pain in the arse. You don't need to invent a James Bond story to make yourself feel better. I mean, that was the narrative. Yeah. My dad's mother, my grandma on my dad's side, was quite, you know, eccentric, is a kind way of putting it. And she, I mean, how these things go through the, the, the generations is of interest to me as well, because my grandpa cheated on my grandma. And, and when I was, and they divorced when I was quite young, and I remember my grandma, I'm talking in the 1970s, 
saying that she'd hired a private detective on my grandpa. So the language of private detectives was in my family. So when I was then saying, look, I, I think Mark is a police spy and I've hired a private detective, my dad was just like, oh, you're just like your grandma. You're just like your grandma. Yeah. I mean, I didn't talk to many people, but the close friends that I did talk to, I think much like Alison, actually just thought it was a boyfriend who was left, uh, who had left and, you know, I shouldn't waste my time wondering who he was. Mm. I should just get on with life. But... You know, I, I think the reality is none of our close friends had seen the depth of the relationships. I mean, they were peculiarly deep. Like, we just seemed to gel so well, mm. seemed to share so many interests. Because he's able to be the perfect man, isn't yes. he? Yeah. Yeah. They were trained and, and they know that to be an effective undercover police officer, you need to kind of what's called mirror the people that you're spying on. You need to kind of be interested in the same things as them and kind of tell them what what you guess they want to hear. Mm. You know, you seem to be a great benefit in their life, essentially. So these relationships had seemed really deep and meaningful and they had all seemed to be going through kind of breakdown type things. So I think it was inevitable that those of us that were in the relationships were really concerned for their well-being because, you know, Mm. we, we, we thought they cared about us and we cared about them. I would add there, though, that they are all different as well. The relationships are different. And we were different ages. I mean, Helen, you were how old with John? You were really young. Well, I was 22 when I met him, but um, 24 when we started the relationship. So, yeah, not... And I was 29. Still, brain's still not fully mature until you're right. 25. Yeah. So. But I was 29. I'd been in a long-term relationship already. I'd come, you know, I was, I'd, I'd been seeing, you know, like out of that relationship for a couple of years. And in a way, I was with Mark for five years. That absolutely blows my mind. And, and when, Helen, you say, like, they were deep and meaningful, mine, in a way, with him, because it was five years, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, really, but it, it was very conventional. That's how it felt. Mm. It felt very safe. Good fun. It was a lot of good fun for several years, which is weird. And there's bits of it that I've probably blocked out. I mean, I do remember a couple of really big rounds that we had. But I think one of the differences with mine is that, and some of the others, Mark was there all the time. You know, and I remember when this all came up, I was like, when we found out about each other, I remember saying to Jude and and to a couple of other very good friends, I'm not making it up, am I, that he was there all the time? He was there all the Mm. time, wasn't he? You know, you start to think, you know, your brain's playing. And they were like, yeah, you you know, he lived, he lived with me. So it wasn't particularly intense. I mean, it was, it was, it felt like a very strong relationship, Um, but it wasn't, he wasn't romantic. He wasn't kind of, you know, he wasn't as open. I don't think he, he performed some of that kind of displays of love and emotion that I think some of the other men did. Yeah. And I think he created something else that felt more solid. It was yeah. completely built on sand. It was an illusion, but it felt like something longer and more solid, I think, maybe, less intense. If we're talking about age, that leads me to another question that I've got. If we talk about two other women involved in this, Rosa who had children with an undercover officer, and Lisa. Now, this ties into the age thing. Lisa spent her late 30s and early 40s with an undercover officer who told her that he didn't want to have children. Now, this happened to you because you're women, but it was worse for you because you're women. We talked about this a lot when we were fighting the first case, the eight of us. So after we came together, 
we had to learn about these different, I had to learn about these different heads of loss and the loss of opportunity to have children, you can't claim for. There's no, there's no claim for that. You can claim if you had a well-paid job and they knocked you off course, you can claim for your loss of earnings. Mm. If you can prove that, you know, you gave them five grand for something, you could possibly claim for that. You can't claim for loss of opportunity to have children. And, and at the time, when some of the stories started to come out and it became apparent that, you know, more than one of these undercover officers had had, had children with activists, there was a huge focus on that. And there still often is. And it's appalling and beyond anything I can really get my head around. But the bit that people didn't focus on is the the loss of opportunity to have children. Mm. You know, and, and like, you're, like you're saying with Lisa's example and, and other women's, that, you know, they took the most fertile years of our lives. So I have been extremely fortunate through the smallness of the Jewish community in London that I'm part of to have hooked up back with somebody I grew up with from Jewish East Club. <laughs> there is now my, Obvious my question. How do you learn to trust people again then? Because you've obviously right. done it. Because it was somebody I knew as a kid. Right. We were at the same youth club. I was in the same primary school class as his first cousin. You know, I knew him as a kid, didn't see him for 20 years. And through connections, I was able to meet up with him. And and we're very fortunate. We're married and we've got two beautiful, lovely, healthy children. But I'm a much older mother than I wanted to be because I was in counselling with Mark for 18 months. You know, marriage guidance counselling with Mark, who was already married, it it turned out with his own children, but I was going to marriage guidance counselling with him for 18 months for the specific reason that I wanted children and he didn't. So I was 38 when I had, had my son and then 41 when I had my mm. daughter. And I count, you know, I, I used to and I still do kind of count forward. How old am I going to be when they're that age? How yeah. old, and how old would I have been if I'd had kids when I wanted to when I was in my early 30s? Oh God, it's so shameful. Can we talk about the media? Because I know you thank a couple of Guardian reporters for their help in the book, but you also quote Richard Littlejohn, who called you an assortment of unwashed dopey girls because he's a monstrous dickhead. How easy has it been to get fair and accurate coverage of this case? It might be worth saying that one of the reasons why we brought the case was because the police were portraying it as a rogue, you know, Mm. Mark Kennedy as a rogue officer. And... They were also basically trying to downplay it. And we knew that there were all these other relationships as well. And the fact is that the media are really hesitant to print stories unless there is conclusive proof that something's happened. And one of the ways of getting around that is that if you bring a court case, Mm -hmm. it enables the court case to be reported on. And so the story becomes real. And uh, until that point, like people don't quite believe it's happening. I mean, that's the other thing about a court case. It, 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 it becomes a real event. Mm-hmm. So, but even so, like initially we all had anonymity orders and repeatedly we would see the police downplaying the nature and impact of relationships. It was really kind of frustration with that that made me give up anonymity there are two key issues for, for me with the, with the, about the media. One, I was advised very early on by a friend who works in the media, you have to control the story. You know, you can't just talk to The Guardian. 
you know, because then other people will come kind of looking for you. And, yeah. and, and that was good advice. And we, we've had, we've thought about that through our campaign work and, and Harriet Wistrich, our fantastic Oh lawyer. my God, we love her. Yeah, I mean, we love her. So, and she was, you know, she was very experienced with the media and gave us a lot of advice as well. The thing that we've noticed, I think, with the media is that we see, as we've tried to write in Deep Deception, that there are four stages to each of us. You know, there's how we were and what we were doing before this deception took place. There's this happy relationship, this seemingly happy relationship where actually we were being deceived and duped. And then there's where we turned into detectives and uncovered it for ourselves. And then there's the coming together and fighting back and exposing it and trying to hold the police to account. And journalists and the media tend to try to want to keep us in column two, if you Mm. like. They want to focus on the happy relationship and where really you were deceived, weren't you, love? Because you were really a bit stupid, weren't you? Or you were deceived. And so what's so special about that? Because everyone's been deceived into a relationship. So what's the big deal? And the challenge for us, I think, has been to kind of, as somebody put it, dancing out of that ring, you know, finding the other parts of the story. Yeah, agreed. Because, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are women who perhaps had a really happy 30-year marriage and then discovered that their husband had been having an affair throughout all of it. So they may feel that they understand something about being deceived or, you know, but what you're talking about is something that's institutionally, like just corruption on a level that I I can't quite get my head around. State-sponsored. Absolutely. State-sponsored, state-funded, paid for by taxpayers' money. I mean, that's why people should care about it. On the media issue, it's true that many people have experienced being deceived by their partners, but I still find it quite astonishing that the police would use that as as though it's some in some way legitimised what mm, they did. Yeah. And also, you know, the fact that some people go and commit burglary doesn't make it OK if the police start breaking into your house. I mean, essentially, it, it showed their contempt for women in general, that, that they thought that that was any kind of an answer yeah. to yeah. the criticisms of their behaviour. Yeah. Now, one of the most interesting things, and this speaks to both the police and the issue of trust, is... When reading Deep Deception and telling your individual stories the way it's structured, you can see how the spy cops scandal links to, you know, to a lot of the more inglorious episodes in the history of policing in the UK. You know, Alison, you were part of a social justice group that included Celia, who was the partner of Blair Peach, who was killed in police custody. Helen, you approached Gareth Pierce, who was central to the exoneration of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. If people listening don't know who she is, she was played by Emma Thompson in, in The Name of the Father. There are links to the Stephen Lawrence case. And it might be easy to say, you know, this is all part of the past, except, you know, in 2021, we've got a woman who's murdered by a serving police officer. And you are still waiting for answers. The undercover policing public inquiry will not report until 2024, which is nearly 40 years after the first woman in your book, Belinda, was targeted. Do you have hope that women in this country will ever be able to really trust the police and that the police are acting in their best interests? I think they've shown us no reason why we should trust that they are acting in the interests of women or, or, you know, have any respect for women. There's still women now. These aren't all historical events. The most recent case that we know of is Mark Kennedy um, and he deceived Lisa and other women into relationships. And that was exposed in 2010 when he was 
okay, he'd left the police, but he was still like a private investigator. And it wasn't at all historic at that point. Mm. The whole point is that this public inquiry is trying to drag on for as long as possible in order that they can claim that this is all historic. Mm. Our case showed that there were eight of us that brought the case. We, between us, we were deceived by five different and undercover officers over a period spanning 25 years. And that absolutely showed that this wasn't some kind of accidental or, you know, one rogue officer going astray. This was a systemic practice and it represented institutional sexism, basically, that they thought they could use women who were part of political movements or friends with people in political movements. They could use those women in order to shore up the fake identities of these mm. um, undercover officers so that they could undermine protest movements. I mean, the whole thing is just totally outrageous. But I mean, both in terms of their political in interference, but also in terms of the really serious institutional sexism that it demonstrates. I don't even know what the outcome would have to be for me to justify the tactics used against you or for me to be able to. I don't think I could justify this if... if you know, this was the tactics they were using to infiltrate terror cells. There is no defence of it. No, there think. is no there is no justification at all. I mean, we discussed this, but, but one of the key things is that if the police believe that someone is committing a crime, they have to investigate that, but they don't have the right to just wreck your life in the process. In answer to the question, can women, are women going to be able to trust the police? If we're talking about the Met in its current incarnation... No. I mean, the one thing that we can see really clearly from the various different reports that have come out, the Hotton report from Charing Cross, mm. the Daniel Morgan panel report that yep. said the Met was institutionally corrupt. We know it's institutionally racist. We now know it's institutionally sexist. And their priority, the Met's priority, which within its own kind of framework makes sense, its own priority is to protect itself. It's about offsetting reputational damage, mm. I think. And where where some of the officers, retired officers who from who were uh, deployed in the early 1970s, when they were giving evidence at the last tranche of the public inquiry, and the last tranche, just the most recent tranche that we had that were finished in May of this year, that was managers, managers of the undercover officers in from 68 to 70, early 70s, um, and up to 1980, I think. And one of the words that kept coming up was like, in answer to the question, what do, you, how, what do you think would have happened if this information had been made public at the time? The answer was embarrassment. So mm. what we can see starting the culture, certainly within these undercover units, the culture was being established right from the outset or certainly within, within you know, five years of the unit being established. You know, a nod and a wink, and maybe these things were going on, and maybe, you know, men were, the officers were having um, sex with activists, but, you know, they, they'll never know. I mean, it's the same with the stealing of the dead children's identities. It was absolutely based on the, the, the starting point was they will never know, and in a really male way, what, what they don't know won't hurt them. Yeah, because that's actually an interesting point. There are there are more people. The, the the damage done by this is spread over a wider scale than than just you. And that's not to diminish what happened to you at all. But you know, there are arguments that the families of these officers were lied to, and you know that the families of those dead children were affected by it. Absolutely, yeah. Now I've got one more question for you. I'm watching Sherwood. 
It is one of a number of TV dramas that has, since your case, introduced the character of an undercover officer being in a relationship or trying to solicit a relationship or pretending to solicit a relationship with someone. Um, You know, there was no offence had uh, an undercover officer who was a female embedded with a far-right group. You know, Sherwood, I don't want to do spoilers for that, but, you know, that's, that's there's something going on in that. There was a drama about the honey trap on Colin Stagg, um, again, from a female undercover officer. They all seem quite committed to both sides. I was curious whether anybody had approached you about anything, about talking to you about it or for your views on this or how you feel about the way the, the arts is looking at your case. Not specifically your case, but maybe using it as a jumping off point. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots of approaches. In terms of Deep Deception specifically, we are keen for it to be a documentary, not a drama. Because we fear that a drama of our story, this our story specifically, will potentially be romanticised. And like you say, you know, the dramatic interest is the conflicted undercover officer. Mm. You know, that's what we saw in the the Adrian Lester, the the, uh, Peter Moffat drama with Adrian Lester and yes. Sophie Okonedo that he was totally, you know, he was crying in his car, poor fella, you know, so dramatically, I understand, you know, no one, for good drama, you don't want black and white, you need a little bit of grey, yeah. and what better place to find it than in the, you know, torn apart heart of a spy cop. The reality is, from our stories, that these men were, you know, they were, we argue, I mean, I argue, I think we all agree on this, they, they were narcissists, they were, you know, sociopaths, I'm not that interested. I am on on a personal level. I am quite interested in mining the psychology of a narcissist. But politically, I think it's a total waste of time and a distraction because it, it's not it's it doesn't it's not what of, is of consequence. And I think where our stories have been used, not we have been consulted and we have worked with some people, and that's not the case with the people we've worked with. But sometimes, and I I don't know this is true for Sherwood yet, because I am watching it very closely, but we haven't seen yet who the spy cop is, so it's difficult to know. But often our stories are used as subplot. They create suspense, they create tension, but there isn't often that much interest in actually the politics underlying it or the issues or the real themes Mm. that underlie it. I think Sherwood at the moment is a bit different from that because it is set in, you know, is set in in a... an ex-mining town. I think it is a bit different, but we've yet to see. Overall, even when it's done appallingly, and there there have been there have been some other works of art, let's just say it in a, in a generally general <laughs> way like that. Even when it's done really badly and really gets our back up, together and with other activists and with other people involved in this, we've created a word. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We've created collectively a new word. And we have, you know, cracked open one of the biggest scandals in British policing. And, you know, the five of us who wrote Deep Deception and the three of us who brought that case with us, the other three, and Harriet and our legal team and the women who've come after us and the other um, allies and, and other people we've worked with closely. We've done something that we hope you know, inspires other people as well to show that there is kind of power in, in collective action and coming together. And we have tried, you know, we are still continuing to fight for truth and justice. But a lot of our energy in the last in the last couple of years really has been focused on the public inquiry. And um, I think, you know, we're, we will still put pressure on the public inquiry. It's actually not going to report until 2026. Wow. So the next set of hearings are in 2024. 
but the reporting isn't due until 2026. So our pressure is, we do want public pressure. We want public attention on the public inquiry, but we also don't want to let the police off the hook because ultimately the police are the people who we were wronged by. The public inquiry and the slowness of it, and as Helen said, you know, the deliberate is just adding to aggravating that damage, if Mm. you like. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that people we really want the answers from are those individual officers who we were in relationships with and their managers and the politicians who were receiving information from those managers and from those senior commanders. And we want to know how far up the chain it went. Oh, I really hope you get answers. I really do. I admire the hell out of you for the ability to just keep going with this because I've I've had a number of conversations recently with people about certain things that have happened, you know, either things that went medically wrong or things that, you know, for example, you know, rape cases where people have said, I know I need to keep going with this, but also I need to start living my life again. And I can see both sides to the to the argument that for some people, just to say, okay, I need to draw a line under this, but also I, I have immense admiration for people who say, I can't draw a line under this until I know everything. And you sticking with this, I think, is inspirational. Deep Deception is out now. Everyone should read it. It also contains some really interesting stuff about the McLeibel trial, in which Helen was rather magnificent and had to endure one of the well the longest trial in British legal history um is there anything that you want to say before we go can people how can people find out more can people be helpful what can people do if they want to they can look at the um police buys out of what out of lives website which is the support campaign for women who are deceived into relationships there is the campaign opposing police surveillance website, which has, you know, updates, reports about the information that's coming out at the public inquiry. And there is the undercover research group, which has kind of profiles of a lot of the undercover officers and lists of different groups that were spied on. Certainly, if you were involved in politics in the last 50 years, it's probably worth looking on there to see whether or not the group that you were involved yeah. in was spied on. But I think the main thing is that everyone really should be concerned about this use of secret political policing to undermine protest movements because change comes about in society because uh, enough people get together and argue the case for why change is needed. And when you've got police officers who are trying to sabotage that and prevent change happening, that basically helps those who've got power already and leaves us with injustice and oppression continuing. Ordinary people are being subjected to, and and obviously uh, environmental issues as well. You know, we've got an environmental crisis at the moment that we're in, and it's heading for worse. And basically, if if you know the police are undermining that movement, that you know it, it impacts on all our lives. Basically, the police should not be undermining. Um, protest movements. Well, I would add to that as well, as well as uh, on our website on the police spies out of lives dot org dot UK website. <laughs> we've also got a kind of a, a what you can do page, which includes downloadable um, motions for trade unions and there's soon to be one for a student union. We're also on Twitter on at at out underscore of underscore lives. I'm on Twitter as Alison Spycops. Helen's on Twitter as Helen Steele 12. Mm. 
damn those other 11 Helen Steels. <laughs> <laughs> and to share to share our content we've got some really good videos as well that we would be grateful to share to read the book to get the story out there and a the kind of challenge that i would leave people with because i think it's it's a conversation piece that that we all need to have really is the challenge i think is well actually i'm i'm actually copying what john mcdonald said at a trade union meeting we held a few weeks ago <laughs> but john said the challenge is to link up the significance of the spy cops abuses over a period of 50 years, stuff that seems historical, to go through, understand and and link up that stuff that's happened from the the late 60s to 2010 with the current legislation that is going through Parliament about protests and surveillance. Oh, God, yes. That's the challenge. That seems an excellent place to end. Thank you so much for your time, Alison and Helen. This has been excellent. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you. Standard issue for all women.